Do you miss the mid-2000s? Yeah, okay, me neither, but I try not to focus too much on our collectively terrible clothing decisions and think instead of the nostalgic and thrilling TV shows we remember so fondly, like Veronica Mars. Veronica Mars was a teen dramedy thriller, a noir under bright Southern Californian sunshine, in which the tiny, sassy detective Veronica Mars, played by Kristen Bell, investigates her best friend's murder, her own mother's disappearance, plus whatever crimes and mysteries are happening that week at her surprisingly crimes and mysteries riddled high school in Neptune, California, a town rife with class prejudice and wealth inequality. Now, if you'd like some help doing that remembering, podcasts have got you covered. We recommend checking out Veronica Mars Investigations. Jenny Owen Young, whom you might know from the podcast Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and Helen Zaltzman, host of The Allusionist and Answer Me This, are your guides through the turbulent life of Veronica both on and off screen. Veronica leads a dramatic, over-the-top, dangerous life, and the show led one too. It was canceled after three seasons, revived for a movie via Kickstarter in 2014, and revived again last year for a Hulu season. Helen and Jenny are bundles of laughs, as they thoroughly delight in the show's antics and don't sugarcoat when something needs to be critiqued. Best of all, they bring on experts at the end of the episode to check in on things like, how accurate were these legal procedures? Here's a hint, usually not that accurate, but they're surprisingly good with warrants. So, you can access the first full season of Veronica Mars Investigations and more information at vmipod.com. Their second season is about to launch. That's vmipod.com. This week, it's a conversation with two truly lovely people, Essex County's own Daniel Ramos and Michael Aquino of Timestorm. Stay tuned for an enlightening, bracing, and resonant conversation about bravery, resilience, history, and the spirit of Puerto Rico. That's all coming up right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey friends, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. I hope you're all doing all right. It's a scary time to be alive, but I hope you are taking care of your friends and family, and that they are taking care of you. There's no better time to start a remote D&D campaign, get into knitting, or consider making an audio drama. Now is the time to indulge as many hobbies as possible. If it's safe for you to leave the house, consider linking up with a local mutual aid society, and if you can't find one in your area, consider starting one. We're all going to need to pull together now. And if you're not immunocompromised, I bet you know someone who is, and they need groceries too. Now, to the interview. This interview was recorded a few months ago, but I think it's really relevant now for a lot of reasons. What we're going through now hurts, and the future is uncertain and terrifying. But just as it's essential for Benny and Alexa to witness, find, and remember the erased history of Puerto Rico... So too must we witness, find, and remember. Witness kindness, find the helpers, and remember your humanity. This interview touched my heart, and I hope it brings you thoughtfulness, peace, and strength. I mean, also, Danya and Michael are absolutely charming people, and we had a lot of fun in this conversation, too. We talked about heavy stuff, sure, but we talked about fun stuff as well. You'll see. Here we go. Danya Ramos and Michael Aquino on Radio Drama Revival. Take it away, Will. Michael and Tanya, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Hey! Thanks so much for having us, David. Thank you, David. 
What a pleasure. Michael, you yeah. contributed like you took a photo of me that is currently my 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 Twitter image. I don't know if you I mean, if you recall, but you there was like I think I was holding up like a, a recommendation card and you took a photo of it so that you could remember the recommendation. Uh yes. and then I don't know, I just I, I, it's a, thank it's you. A proud that moment. Made, it's a proud yeah, it's proud it's a proud moment in my life to have well, you, you have photo. to you have to understand how how infrequently a, a good photo of my face emerges. Oh, you look great, man! Yeah, thank, no, it was, you. it was you look great, and and at any time, David. But I I am proud that you posted that or you use that as your profile pic. I am very well. Proud that's a very it's a very fine <laughs> reminder of Pod Tales and of the first time that we met in person. Yes, um, for sure. absolutely. So. Danya, to start us off, according to a few interviews that you've done, Timestorm began as an entry in a 2013 playwriting competition that specified that the scripts be about New Jersey history. So I guess my my question is, when did you decide to rework it around Puerto Rican history and for this first season around the impending disaster of Hurricane Maria? Like, I I learned from the interview you did with Alex Hensley that Lieutenant Mendez was originally the real-life Mexican aviator Emilio Carranza. So tell me about yes. the, the decision to rework it. Yes. So just a really quick version uh, of, of that is that it was originally um, a proposal for a TYA, so Theater for Young Audiences, stage play. Um, and it was in the guidelines, it was supposed to be about New, about New Jersey history. Um, and so Emilio Carranza was actually um, a Mexican aviator who was known as like the Charles Lindbergh of, um, of Mexico. And he um, was on his way back to Mexico when he crashed in the New Jersey, the Pine Barrens of New Jersey um, and in an electrical storm. So um, in researching, doing research for New Jersey history, I came across this. And, you know, the, the story that I had come up with with was that there were these twins who went to, you know, visit this monument in the Pine Barrens of this Mexican aviator, and they, while they were there, got swept into this time storm. Um, And (laughs) so, (laughs) because, you know, (laughs) as that happens. um, um, And so that this notion of this this character was kind of um, existing in this other dimension. Um, And now I, I, so I didn't get that that uh, I didn't win that contest and I put that away. I, I think writers, we often have a lot of different projects that we kind of put aside. Um, and I, I actually took um, yeah. a really, yeah, right. So I took a really great workshop um, at um, in the city and um, it was specifically for TYA. And they said, bring something that you've worked on in the past that you would want to workshop and get like feedback on. And so I brought this um, and in that workshop, um, you know, people were just kind of throwing around different questions and the, um, the workshop leader, um, uh, Kusi Cram, um, she led it with her, her, um, husband, Peter Hirsch. Um, so she asked the question, well, what if, um, this, what, what they were doing is going back into the past and witnessing their, you know, what led to their own identity and heritage. Um, and uh, they were always uh, created as Puerto Rican twins. And that to me was such a fascinating question. And I was like, well, why? of course, like it, it seemed like a, th- that was what it was always meant to be. Um, and so I, in, in the development, I really kind of just dove all the way into that. But I said, okay, well, if it's about their own uh, heritage and identity, um, who is the equivalent for 
them um, that would be in that other dimension as their kind of guide and mentor. Um, and so I created a, a fictional character of Lieutenant Horacio Mendez. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I got uh, to, to, the, to them going into the past and exploring Puerto Rican culture. Um, and in terms of uh, the Hurricane Maria part, um, we had been developing, Michael and I had been developing um, the series um, for, for uh, a couple of years as, as what we wanted to do with, with audio fiction when um, Maria, Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico um, in, in September of 2017. And um, we were kind of really just had put everything, our creative projects on hold to really focus on, um, you know, the spreading the word about recovery efforts and taking part of a couple of um, um, fundraisers. And when we did eventually come back to our creative projects and, and came back to Timestorm, we realized, you know, the island changed after that that um, disaster, and we knew that we had to incorporate it. We had to have it there, present in some way, because it, there was no way not to have it there. Um, so the way we 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 knew we could do that was to set it. Um, that first episode set it in the days leading up to it. So we would see um, what it through the the Venturas and how they dealt with it. We would see what it what it was like to. Um, be stateside and and having family on the island and really kind of dealing with that and trying to help in the recovery efforts. And a lot of the stuff, a lot of the um, poetry that was in the Heart of Newark episode, right, is pulled from uh, a real fundraiser that you held in 17, is that correct? Yeah, we met Isabel, who uh, is featured as one of the poets in, in the Heart of Newark episode. And we knew J.F. Siri, uh, who was the other poet in in um, the heart of Newark. She didn't perform that night during the benefit, but we knew her poem was was um, powerful and and struck the right chords for what we were looking for 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 that episode. So we invited her on. And then um, you know uh, the other song in that episode is me and my uh, co-writer uh, on that song, Davis Garcia, who we we wrote. Um, mm-hmm. Talking Spirits. So that was basically the heart of Newark, uh, aside from the original song that uh, Sonia has uh, created and is debuting (laughs) for the first time at at the heart of Newark. Yeah. I can imagine another version of Timestorm where the Ventura twins did have the latitude to make alterations to history, but here they are expressly forbidden from doing so. And this seemed like a very particular considered decision. Um, so I, I would like to hear about the philosophy that supports that choice. Yeah. Um, so I, I think when we're talking about, you know, when we are including what happened um, in Puerto Rico with Hurricane Maria, um, it was very real. It happened and we are all... Um, living with it and anybody who lived through it literally on the island but also stateside um and i think we both knew that there was no way that we were going to um erase that or take that away or say this didn't happen um so there there was that um and then 
There's also something to be said. I know um, it's funny when you think about just from a writing point of view that if you say, oh, your char our characters are going to go back in time and witness things like that feels very passive right? <laughs> in terms of, um, uh, you know, just, you know, a storytelling arc. Um, but I think when when your parts of your history um, or your past uh, have been hidden, um, yeah. or, or, you know, uh, you know, intentionally, um, not told, um, when, if you were hypothetically given the, the opportunity to go back in time and witness and remember those moments that in itself, witnessing somehow becomes a, like this radical act. Right. Um, like it's no longer, it ceases we to be here. passive, right? Right, right. So mm -hmm. it becomes this very active um, thing for the twins that right. they are, and they are, you know, in, in terms of like storytelling, they are literally finding objects, they're finding artifacts. But the important thing is that they are meeting um, these people um, who, who, who are not necessarily showing up in history books, that they're witnessing moments that aren't showing up in many history books. They're saying... <laughs> we're here, we exist, our, our people existed, our people did these amazing things, and we're seeing it and bringing it back to, to you know, our time. So it becomes very active to me. That's how I felt sure. about it. Absolutely. And, you know, I can just, I could just add by, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's so uh, f fun to watch the, the twins uh, struggle to, to not want to change things because I think sometimes for me, in my opinion, it's sometimes it's a little easier to change things. You know, it's, it's sometimes it's a, a little bit more of a struggle and a challenge not to, because especially when things are going um, in a way that you don't want it to go and you want to see it differently. And, and it, it's sometimes it's a struggle to, to let it be because, you know, that's the way it happened, you know, and um, it's, it's kind of really, uh, I think it, it, the struggle becomes a little more real when they can't change right. it. And for them to see them navigate that is um, so interesting and complex. Yeah, thank you. Um, so Elena Fernandez-Collins is my friend, one of my colleagues on the show, and the two of us were batting ideas back and forth before this interview. And so this, this idea is one of theirs. It's the notion of colonization or historical trauma as itself being a kind of natural or even unnatural disaster, how they might have similar effects on history. The example that Ellie cited to me was the, the recent earthquake swarm destroying Punta Ventana in Guayania in southern Puerto Rico, the natural stone arch, and how colonization can erase history in the same way. How does, how does that metaphor strike you? That's a really... That's a really powerful metaphor. Um, I, I think that something that comes to mind when you were talking about that, David, is this notion that um, with colonization, often um, a colonized land will experience somebody or people coming in and really exploiting the natural resources, like the only interest in, in coming into this place that is so valuable to the, the people who already calling it home is to, you know, get the gold or get the, you know, use the salt or the sugar or whatever, whatever it is that, that they're looking to use the land for and exploit it. Um, th that's what comes to mind when you were saying that. Um, and I don't know if that's really answering your question. It can be. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's where 
um, the metaphor went goes for me um, in terms of like the original kind of colonization. And if we're talking about um, more modern, I mean, I think. Yeah, it, it certainly is a disaster, some of the stuff that's happened after these natural disasters um, in terms of, um, you know, funding uh, not being allocated in time from the, the, the federal government um, or just even a response. Um, uh, there, It's astonishing how, um, how often you can see that um, Puerto Rico after the hurricane, after the earthquakes is often... Uh, to me, being ignored um, in a way from from the federal government um, in so many ways, and that it very much is a disaster, right. you know, um, and not a natural one. That's a man-made one. Um, so it's just compounding what is already um, happening. And I can I, I just want to add too that within that disaster, um, Puerto Ricans have Puerto Ricans on the island have this spirit that's that's pretty. Amazing that I, you know, sometimes I, I don't know where it comes from. You know, I, I, I put, try to put myself in their situation and see that they find ways of of sur- surviving, really, because that's what it, it really comes down to a lot of the times with these natural disasters that have affected Puerto Rico in the past few years. It's just that, you know, they, they need to survive and they know the help is not necessarily going to be there. And, um they there's this this depth to uh the community that um is so uh inspiring and beautiful that that um and i'm not trying to you know glorify it or anything but i'm just saying that it's it's just really a a beautiful thing that that makes me very uh proud to to be puerto rican that spirit that resiliency that is so evident um that was there um after maria even just on the island of people helping each other um is part of that that spirit is what we were hoping to capture in the community efforts in the series itself that happened in season one um that kind of just we've got each other's backs and we're going to be here for each other um and and me yeah so so something that we were we were talking about a little bit before and something that Ellie has written about is the the denial of history to colonized people right uh, tell me about how you want to heal the wounds of that denial like what does it mean to acknowledge the pain the desolation and the triumphs of the past all at the same time so we're we're going into the past. Um, the, the twins are going into the past, um, and we're exploring, for example, um, the the first people they meet um, are they meet Celestina Cordero and Rafael Cordero, who are um, um, Afro um, Boricua um, uh, educators. And so um, while Rafael Cordero kind of has gotten his due in history, someone like Celestina Cordero. Um, um, was was really kind of left out of the the history books, um, and so I think that you know when I was writing that episode, um, there came a moment where we we felt that I felt that there was something missing, and um, and I I finally understood I I felt what needed to happen was that um, Alexa Alexa needed to to thank her you know and so. It, in a way that 
when we were recording that, that felt right, that that felt, I guess, if you want, I don't want to say like, this was a healing moment, <laughs> but like that, that that was the simple, you know, the answer and that's what we're doing or anything like that. But it, it just in a tiny little acknowledgement um, could start that, that healing uh, acknowledgement of, um, you know, there was so much effort and there was so much that was, that you, that someone like Celestina Cordero did. Um, and, uh, and she was never acknowledged for it, of course. Right. So, um, so something like writing that thank you or the scene that comes after where her 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 brother Rafael is saying hey I'm I'm who I am because of you um is is a little tiny way of starting to to go towards healing um that yeah I feel like that wound is is still so open you know and I think it's I think I think in the it yeah it's still in in the relative you know, scale of time, it's been so short that, um, uh, you know, the, from 1898, when the U.S. first um, acquired Puerto Rico to, to now, it's it's really, it's not a lot of time. And, and what Puerto Ricans have faced has been, has been a lot, you know, and I feel like, and it's one thing after another. I feel like the, the history has really kind of compounded all of these things one after the other. And I think it makes it really kind of tough uh, to think about healing right now. And I, I know we should be, but I, and I feel it's tough for me to think about that process of healing, you know, and I guess with time storm, I mean, we're not, you know, like you said, we're not assuming that, you know, this is going to be a piece to, to heal wounds in Puerto Rico, but, you know, I think, for us personally, I think it allows us to really kind of connect um, to this notion of what it is to be Puerto Rican, you know, and, and, uh, you know, what is, you know, we've been talking a lot about this, Donnie and I, like what it is to be Puerto Rican and, you know, um, claiming rights to, you know, who can be, you know, Puerto Rican and who can't, you know, and, and I think that, that kind of for us falls away you know we really don't want to get wrapped up in that and and just know that everyone has their own perspective of what that means i think i'm rambling a bit now but <laughs> but uh it, yeah you know it's it's just really has been um doing the series has really brought up a lot of this this kind of notion of of puerto rican identity for us and i think that um it's something we think about a lot and think about frequently. And I think that's why it's, it's, it's when we answer these questions, it's very measured because we don't, um, we're still figuring it out, man. Ramble away. That was great. We're still figuring it out. How has working on the show changed your relationship to your own identities? Um, it's such, it's such a complex thing. Um, you know, in particular, you know, growing up, um, uh, my relationship with with Puerto Rico, the island itself, was that you know I, I had family. We would visit often, um, uh, several t- times in my youth. I would go there, you know, for for a few, couple of weeks at a time, and and it was um, in some ways it felt very much like a home. 
uh, a second home, but it, it was it was never the same relationship that my parents uh, had with the island. You know, they were born there and they came here in their youth. Um, so, so I, I had that, that was kind of like what I brought to the table. Um, um, I grew up with, with the music, the, the food. Um, I grew up, uh, with a lot, actually a good amount of, uh, a sense of historical, um, and just kind of like the folklore of things, um, thanks to my parents who really kind of, um, you know, made it a priority that, that, that would be part of my life. Um, and so coming to the series as an adult who's kind of experienced that, but still really questioning, um, you know, questioning how, how, what my relationship is to that island. You know, as an adult, I've been there um, a, ha a handful of times. It's not been a, as often as in my youth. Um, and... And so when it comes down to uh, writing for 8 to 12-year-olds, because that's what we're doing. We're telling a story for the contemporary 8 to 12-year-old. Um, there, there, um, there is, I think, a process that I think both, both Michael right. and I went through. of, uh, And we both teach this age, of course. So um, kind of thinking of like our students and also we have uh, family members who are in this age group. Um, what? What does it, what would they think of their identity? What is that identity going to be like for them? Um, and so kind of coming at it, uh, putting ourselves in like a, a younger age bracket and thinking, um, what if, if, you know, if you haven't been to the island or if you've been there once, um, how, how does that change the perspective? Um, I think... Um, I think sometimes, uh, in writing this, um, I find myself, uh, wondering or doubting or thinking, um, outside of myself, is someone going to question whether or not we're, we're the right ones to tell this story? Um, and at the end of the day, these are 12 year old kids from Newark who have a, a a state side they they are from the states and they are wanting to learn more about their um their heritage um and that that was both of our experiences we were from new jersey you know and and we um and we had a specific relationship to the island so i think it was it's been it's been um an honor to kind of uh write about that um yeah yeah, I can ditto pretty much a lot of what Danya says. I think, you yeah. know, we really go back and forth a lot. We talk about this so frequently, but I think Timestorm really has allowed me um, to, you know, uh, allow me to really kind of dive into my identity while these while these kids are are are, are running around in these different time periods it's it, and i have to hear their adventure over and over because i'm editing and and, and I, I start processing that for myself and what does it what does it mean to me and it and it really has i've learned i learned a lot you know and and i really feel like my connection to the island has grown my heart for the island has grown um i've always felt like i was puerto rican i've and and i'm part cuban as well but i mm -hmm. you know i always felt i 
was Puerto Rican, but I, I feel like my connection to the island, to the people, and to the community has has grown. And I think we will... Um, I think what we're hoping also with this series is that, you know, that no matter who you are, if you if you're Puerto Rican and in your, you know, in the Midwest, in in the suburbs or you're Puerto Rican and you're, you know, in uh, in a city on the East Coast that that, you know, you're still Puerto Rican, you know, no matter what, if you can speak Spanish fluently, if you can't you're still Puerto Rican. And I think that's that's really, really important to us. And I think we kind of touch on that, uh, at least so far in the first season. And and we, we hope that, you know, uh, kids can, can really connect with that as well. And it's not only about being Puerto Rican too. It's also like, you know, um, whatever culture you may be, like finding your identity within that culture is, is is really important to us. And we hear kids say that to us all the time. We're like, we, we they like it because they start to wonder about their own culture, their own heritage. We, we're, mm-hmm. you know, they want to ask that, they start asking their parents, well, where, you know, who are the people in our culture that, that are like this? And then they get interested in finding out about their own histories. And that's so amazing to us. So, you were chosen as one of the six inaugural podcasts in the PRX Google Podcast Creator Program. First of all, congratulations. Second of all, Thank you. <laughs> second of all, what were the most valuable things that you learned from that experience? Yeah, you, whew, man. Yeah, it, it was a really uh, amazing program to be a part of. I think we went in, you know really open to learning uh, a lot, especially because PRX is their training team specifically, because that's who we were dealing with. They really have, uh, they're really thorough and at the forefront of, of training, podcast training. You know, their podcast 101 videos are amazing. And that's that's a bit of a glimpse of, of what of what we did in a short, uh, that's in a longer span of time in six months. Um, and I have to say, you know, we really learned to um be become i mean we were thorough but we became even more thorough we became uh even more uh you know detailed with with our approach to time storm and and really kind of of listening to the audience and and really finding who our who our listener is and discovering who that listener is and, and making sure that that listener is clear to us and is always in our mind with whatever we create. Um, and, and sometimes that, you know, that, that means, you know, being very, very specific and making specific choices, um, you know, and then not always being the choices that would be something that I necessarily want to hear, but something that they want to hear. And I think really finding that listener and finding and and always making sure that they are there in our the forefront of our minds. It was was I think the biggest takeaway I think I I took away. I mean, we we learned many things. I mean, we had, you know, great mentors and they they gave us so much great knowledge, but I think that when I think about the program, I think about finding that listener and making sure that that's always clear. Yeah, I, I mean, and I'll just kind of continue along with what Michael is saying. Um, one of the big things was we wanted, we wanted, we were clear on our audience, but we also, we also really 
um, started to understand that our listeners, we have the 8 to 12 year old is kind of like the target listener, but we also very much um, uh, have a listener of the parents. Right. And so that's something very specific about this age group. When you're writing for this age group, um, of course, we want to write an amazing audio drama and make it interesting and fun and an adventure. Um, But there's more beyond that that we really wanted to to keep in mind. So we did actually um, interviews with parents and kids um, uh, several, several uh, different interviews. We actually went into a seventh grade classroom. Um, So we we had... uh, the, them listening to parts of it, getting feedback on all aspects of it, and then also just getting feedback on, you know, the type of stories that they love to hear or the types of ways they want to interact with technology or they want to get stories. What's their favorite way to get stories? Is it through video games? Is it through whatever it is? We wanted to know what it was exciting for them. And that all really informed mm-hmm. um, kind of how we came back to the series um, and and wrote with them in mind. Um, that was huge. And a big thing that we actually came away with was we put them in the episodes, you know, <laughs> at the end, we have something really fun called listener share outs. And that is mm-hmm. actual um, uh, listeners who, who send clips in. Um, we have a, a few prompts that are on our website and they send in their stories. And that is a really, I think, really key and fun uh, um, part of the episodes that we have now. And that came from that process. At, uh, at the PRX Google Podcasts Creator Program. Yeah, and just a point of clarification, um, I think we mentioned it, but just in case, yeah, we went into the program already having launched the first five episodes and we had stopped um, production to go through the program and then re-released uh, episodes one through five with the rest of season one in August. That almost so. prevented you from applying, didn't it? You, I'm glad you applied. Thanks. Yeah, we oh man, we're so glad we applied too. We were like right on the bubble being like, nah, you know, we're not going to do this, you know, but because it's like we already had episodes out. We're like, they're not going to choose us. They, you know, they're going to go with something that's that that's, um, you know, in development, you know, but we were just like, let's let's make them make that decision. You know, we'll send it in and right. let them say no. And, you know, and yeah. we're so we're so glad we 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 sent it in because it just like I said, it was just a life changing um, experience for both of us. Uh, Michael, tell me about the decision to sometimes use a binaural mic on the show. I suppose you better explain what that is, first of all. This is Coco Tazo ASMR. Yes, it's like huge, huge for ASMR. I mean, this is what, I mean, I think what like 80% of binaural microphones are used for is ASMR or like binaural beats or something. Um, That's that's really funny. But um, when we were coming back to re-recording the um, first five uh, episodes, I just I, I I was thinking about the sound and I was just thinking about how to differentiate the sound. I wanted it to when they went into the time storm to sound sound different. So I started doing some research um, and I didn't know actually I didn't know about binaural microphones until this past year. Um, and when I stumbled across this this microphone, I was like, it has two ears on it and is weirdly shaped what is this <laughs> and then i just did the research and found out that it was you know it's a, essentially a microphone that has two two microphones um it's it's a dual microphone that has uh, two microphones in what are prosthetic ears to simulate what it is to have 
a sound coming into your ear canal to get it to have it sound as realistic to human hearing as possible. Now, obviously, this is digitally created, so it's it's not 100% accurate, but um, this company, 3DO, that makes the microphone that we have, I reached out to them um, when we were redoing the series and we were involved in the program and, and just kind of said, you know, what, I'm just going to pitch it to them and just see if they would like do a sponsorship of, of with a microphone because they are so expensive. And, and, um, 3DO, uh, I got, I heard back from the, one of the owners and he said, let's talk. And I was like, what really? I was like, okay, cool. So we had this wonderful hour long conversation and I talked to him about my idea of, of using a binaural microphone in the time storm. So when the twins and, and Horacio and Atabe are in the time storm, I record using the binaural microphone as well as uh, condenser mics so that the condenser mics really kind of pick up the speech, but the binaural microphone picks up the environment. So it sounds like almost like, like we were talking about with the mid-side microphone, it makes you feel like you're in the scene. And I talked to him about this. And at the end of the conversation, he was like, look, I'll send you this microphone. And if it works for you, that's great. And, you know, we'll, you know, we'll definitely include you on our website. And, and all we ask is that you just, you know, mention that, that we sent you uh, a mic, not even sent you that we're sponsoring you uh, with this microphone. I said, that's not a problem at all. And, um, we tested it out and we just, the results were just kind of otherworldly. Um, in the sound and and I think what makes it work best and from my discussions with the owner and the creators of this microphone was that um, to make a binaural microphone really work you have to have it in an environment that simulates the size of the space you're in so for for the time storm you know it's in a helicopter fuselage so the, the closest thing we have to uh, a fuselage of a helicopter is our kitchen. So <laughs> we record all of the time storm scenes in our kitchen and it kind of has a little bit of a bounce to it because it's there's a lot of hard surfaces. I do add some like acoustic paneling around just to kind of deaden it a little bit, but I kind of, you really need it to be live because if you try to um, record in a very dry environment with this microphone, and add like reverb and make it sound like uh, a space, it really doesn't work. So it's really, it's really hmm. specific and finicky, but if you can make it work, it sounds really cool. And essentially um, wherever you are in relation to the microphone is how it sounds in your ears. So if you're listening on headphones, specifically on headphones, um, it, it loses its effect in speakers, but with headphones, when you're listening with headphones, if I am above the microphone, like I'm going to do right now. Hello. It sounds like I'm above you. Um, and that's what's really amazing about this microphone and what really excites us for using it as the Time Storm mic. And a, a couple of things to add. Sorry, that was a lot. No, I, I just geeked out on it a little bit. <laughs> but I just want to, in terms of like the, the spatial part of that, in terms of directing, um, there are a couple of things, fun things we were able to do. Uh, every time the twins go in or out of the time storm, we literally have them run around. So if you, you know, are wearing headphones, you close your eyes, it feels like they're running around. Um, 
and around your head. Um, and the other thing is is that Atabe, um, who is kind of, you know, this uh, incorporeal entity, um, we actually have her stand on a block and speak and lower the microphone so she feels like she's coming from above. Um, so, so some little secrets of how we record and differentiate the voices there. Yeah. Yeah. So the two of you are a married couple. First of all, how did you meet? Oh, okay. We met in college. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I can say uh, we... At, at Montclair State, the official the official school of this of production. Love. Yeah. <laughs> official um, University of Love for us. Yes. Wow, Montclair State. You know, you really have done your homework. <laughs> um, or Heather. Heather has. Um, but I'm sure you, you yes, you, you do know. You do your research too, David, I know. I am a passive recipient of this information. <laughs> so so here's the funny thing. Um, so I was actually a year ahead of Michael. Um, and we both okay. were BFA uh, uh, theater students um, in the program at Montclair State University. Um, and so I was a year ahead. And the, the sophomores... Ha- get assigned a freshman buddy um, to kind of show oh my goodness. Ding, 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 show, ding. The ro- show the ropes um, and so Michael was my freshman buddy um, and I, I sh- this is unbelievably cute <laughs> it was so cute I, there's a picture of that I think that first year uh, and I'll see if I can maybe we could find it and send it to you so yeah you could... I would love yeah. that yeah. Um, so we met in the halls of Life Hall um, of Montclair State University My second question is, whenever I have people on the show that are in both romantic and creative partnership, I like to ask them about their process. So how how does your creative life leak into your home life? Are they one and the same? Do you build walls around each part of it? (laughs) You know, you were just telling me you record in your kitchen. Right. So we are, um, we're very lucky where we've had a lot of practice working together. Um, You know, we have... When we were out of college, we started a theater company together. Um, it was a 501c3 theater company that we started, and that took a lot of work. Um, and And I think we learned really at that point how to really work effectively together. And I think it not only helped us with our working relationship, relationship but also our personal relationship as well. And like pretty much after that, we've always worked on something collaboratively together. And I think, you know, uh, we just have it down. We understand when each other needs space and we understand when uh, we need to get together and and really hash things out, you know. And, you know, um, I think I can probably take things a little personally sometimes. (laughs) But Danya is amazing and she doesn't, you know, and. And, <laughs> but she she is so amazing, and I th- yeah I want to hear from her. Yeah. But you know I've got to say you know we're we and when I say you know I we we really have a great working relationship. It's not really contentious at all. Yeah. Um, but I think because of all of the practice we've had with collaborating, we've collaborated on theater projects, we've collaborated on you know teaching engagements with 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 classes and things like that. So we've we just had a lot of that experience that when we came to Timestorm, it was really just applying a lot of that um, experience we've had working together into this. And we know how to kind of separate, um, you know, our personal uh, 
lives from our professional ones. So we're, we're able to do that pretty effectively, I think. Sure. Right, Danya? Yes, yes. Yeah. But I, I mean, don't give me, I, I, like, <laughs> you're giving me lots of props for, <laughs> of course, like when you're working on anything that's creative, like there comes a moment where you're like super believe in something or, you know, that where you're like, um, you know, there's something can come up. But um, in general, but what Michael is saying is very true. We've, we've worked on a, quite a few different projects um, uh, together. Um, but I think specifically for Time Storm um, and audio, we've found that there are times where uh, I'm going to be really heavy, like into script writing. Um, and then there's going to be times like um, after recording where Michael's really going to be heavy in post-production. And we try to like, you know, know when, know how to support each other in that. Like, okay, he's, <laughs> he's spending X amount of hours, <laughs> uh, you know, doing post-production in front of the screen or whatever. And just really like being, finding ways to support when the other person's really doing a lot of um a lot of the heavy lifting at a certain point for the, for the project. We also go on a lot of um, walks if we need to, or you know, just making sure we we like do things that we love, like hiking or you know things outside of Time Storm, um, just to make sure that we are just ourselves and a couple and balancing that part of our lives as well. Yeah, and and when Dania really gets into um, you know her her writing phase. I make sure, like you know, I'm taking a bulk of the 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 household duties, and when you know I'm heavily into like a ten hour post production day, like Danya will do the, the house duties. So we were and we're really good about it, and we don't really it doesn't it's like all right, I'm doing it, and I'm doing it, and we're you know we're just getting things done because nice. we have to, you know. So we're we're pretty we're pretty flowy like that. Bravery was a key value of Timestorm, and I I think a lot about. How the show treats Thad, how how Janelli specifically is kind to this bully and makes the effort to understand him. And I think of that as requiring a particular kind of bravery. Yeah. Um, so I'd like you to tell me about that character decision and other values you want the show to embody. Yeah, you know, it's funny because Thad, he was originally kind of essentially there to kind of make fun of Benny, give him a hard time. Um, and, and I made this decision to kind of have him show up in a comic book store um, since that was Benny and Janelli's safe place, um, I wanted to see like what would that do to to Benny and Janelli. Um, but then, at, and yeah. so what happens in that? This is early on. I think it's episode two. Um, what happens in that that episode? He comes in and is like is asking about a Kylo Ren mask and is pretending kind of like, oh, it's for my brother, you know, of course. Um, and I I asked myself, well, what if there was more something underneath that? It wasn't just that he didn't. It wasn't like, oh, I just don't want to be seen, you know, anybody knowing that I like Star Wars. Um, but what if there's something else under that? Um, and so um, I I explored what it meant, um, what it would mean if his family couldn't afford that mask. And that was really kind of when he heard how much it was that he knew he wouldn't be able to afford it. Um, and that was like kind of a secret that he was keeping. And so that that, that was kind of always there with Thad. Um, and that, that, you know, Benny, Benny and Alexa don't, don't necessarily see what's going on. And, and even his friend, uh, Jaden, they don't recognize that he has the secret and he's trying hard to keep it. Um, but Janelli does, you know, and, and it, it comes really kind of subtly. And I think, I think it was episode six where Janelli just kind of 
notices it in him, that kind of shame, and, and makes a point of saying, like, hey, here, you dropped this money, and make sure you don't, these are bills, don't, don't lose them. And, um, and, and I think that, you know, it does show such a, a brave, uh, bravery from Janelli in particular in that moment, um, you know, cause she could easily make fun of him and get lost in kind of like, oh, he dropped all his coins, ha ha ha. But, um, but she takes him aside and, and, and acknowledges that, that, um, you know, she sees him in that moment, um, sees, sees his vulnerability. Um, and, and she actually acknowledges it later in, in, in a mini-sode that we have, um, where they talk about it. You know, she says, hey, um, I, I think I know what you're going through. Um, this is what happened to me. And if it's happening to you, it's okay. I understand. Um, and that's a big deal, you know, for, um, for anybody who's really struggling with, um, you know, maybe if their family is, is struggling financially, um, to kind of even speak about, you know, with somebody else, uh, yeah. let alone someone else who's not necessarily, who's been, hasn't been very friendly to you, you know? Um, yeah. And, and so that wasn't, I think it was important to show that even though that wasn't necessarily an inte- the intention with Thad when we originally conceived of him as a character. Um, and in terms of other, I guess, uh, uh, values, you know, I think loyalty is huge with the friends for sure. Um, you know, uh, th- there's a little bit of a mention that uh, when they were growing up that that Janelli, um, uh, Alexa, Benny, and Sonia, all four of them were friends. And then, you know, when they got to as many... Um, as many children do when you get to middle school, that there's kind of people kind of, you know, go off in their own direction. And so that happens where Sonia and Alexa kind of become closer and Janelli and Benny become closer. But in the end, through through everything that's happening, that there, there ends up being kind of like uh, the, the loyalty question um, comes up in many ways, you know, um, Benny, when Benny has information about something that's taking place at the comic book store and he doesn't share it with Janelli, she questions that loyalty. And so they have to kind of work that out of like, well, I'm your best friend. You should be telling me this. Why did you keep it from me? Um, so we wanted to definitely explore loyalty, um, with the friends. Um, and then, then I think just even just a sense of uh, justice when when uh, Benny and Alex are going back in time, they're seeing a lot of things that are just not fair. Um, and 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 both of them they they have the opportunity to kind of um, you know see these moments, and then later on they talk about like that was not fair. Um, and and these you know of course they're talking about things that happened in a in the past um and that's you know whether it's uh you know for example Lola Tisol um, when they go back in time and meet her um she was told she was actually told by her father like you're yes you're a talented musician but this is not a life for a, a woman a young woman this is not a choice for you you can't do this and Alexa and Benny talk when was Tisol again was she uh 
1907? Yes, the the scene, well the scene that we okay. we um we had her actually in two two time periods. Um I believe it Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, so we showed her as a girl. I believe it was um um 1897 and then 10 years later as a teenager. Um so so she was um 1907 is when she's a teenager. That's the majority of the episode takes place then. Um and so yeah. Got it. Thank sorry. No, 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 no problem. Um yeah, so so um, they're able to kind of see that character as a teenager, um, and and Alexa feels very strongly it's just not fair. You know, both of them agree about that. Michael, what about you? What are the what are the virtues that you think about the show as embodying? Uh man, what I can say that Danya did not just say. <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 no. I mean, I mean, I. You know, I I hope it's not, but I really do agree uh, a lot with what Danya just mentioned, and it's it's just you know, as a kid who you know I thankfully was not really a victim of being a bully, um, uh, or uh, being bullied rather. I was not a bully either. So I, I kind of was in this no man's land of being of of having that kind of experience like that was not really an experience I had. So but but seeing the way Danya has really kind of handled um, that with with Thad and um, and even with with um, with Thad's friend. Uh, I can't remember his Jayden. name. Jaden. Yeah. You know, Jayden. yeah. Seeing, I mean, he's, he's really small role, but just seeing how the bully gets bullied, you know, and uh, it's just, it just goes to show like there is this, this, there's this, this thing that you just never know what is behind um, what's going on behind the scenes and and to have that compassion and grace to be able to to um reach out to a bully and to have that is tough that's it's really tough and and the way donnie has handled it is just has has been really kind of inspiring to me and 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 a learning experience for me to be able to see that like i said i really never experienced that so i didn't really have a a reference for it so and i'm lucky that I, i did not have that experience but but it's just it's been really kind of inspiring to to watch the interaction there. I have two more questions for y'all. Okay. Um, so, okay. Question question the first. Um, <laughs> did either of you have a Tatu or an LJ Ortega growing up? Like who were the, the shopkeepers, the teachers, the writers, the musicians that inspired you? So I will start. Um, so uh, in high school, um, I joined the drama club. Um, and so that was definitely a safe place uh, for for me. Um, and the, the person who was in charge of the drama club was Maurice Moran. Um, he was also an English teacher, as most uh, drama club <laughs> um, supervisors are. But um, what was special about Mr. Moran was that, um, I, and I don't remember how I found this out, I somehow found out that, um, you know, years before I had attended this high school, that there had been a drama uh, uh, class uh, on the books, kind of 
there available. And it wasn't available when I was going there. And I brought it up to his attention. I was like, hey, what what happened to this drama class? And he said, um, you know what, if you, there wasn't enough enrollment, if you get X amount of people to sign a petition, um, then you, then we can have the class again. So I went around and was like, you know, oh yeah, <laughs> that's a challenge. I'll, I'll step up to that. Um, Sonia. And yes, very Sonia. Um, so, so I, I got it, I got it done. And for the next year we had this drama class. Um, and if drama club was a safe place, drama class was super safe. Um, and, and a place where it was, um, I believe, any uh, grade could come in. I, so it wasn't limited to certain grades. So it'd be this amazing place where, like, um, students of all ages and all kind of backgrounds, like, it was very interesting. It was, it, you know, who signed up for a drama class um, uh, to be able to kind of, like, do a scene with, like, you know the popular boy who everybody was swooning, swooning over or whatever. Um, and who wouldn't like talk to you? Like if you saw him in the hall or something like that, but all of a sudden, you know, we were in that class and we were all like, okay, what does this scene mean? What does this character want? And, um, and that was like a really magical experience. So I, I just, I really valued what Mr. Moran did um, for me, not just like, okay, here's the drama club, but kind of almost like, you know, you here's this thing, it, it existed, it doesn't anymore, but you can change that. Here's what you have to do. And um, and that was a great uh, thing that he did. And, and I'm glad I learned that lesson from him to kind of be like, okay, what are you going to do about it? And I can I can echo with my drama teacher from high school. I mean, I guess being theater geeks, we're, we're probably going to say our drama teachers. But he... Was, his name was uh, Mr. O'Connor, and he passed away maybe about seven years ago from a heart attack. He was actually very mm. young, and but he was so inspiring to me where um, you know, I was getting to um, my last year in high school, and... Um, I was figuring out where I wanted to go. And I, you know, I really kind of made this decision that I wanted to go to school and study theater. And um, I had a teacher who, who will go unnamed, who said to me, why are you doing that? You're wasting your life. At which point I, I like, and for a teenager to hear that, you know, when, when I'm making this decision, like, and I was like, holy crap. And he was... He was so cool. He was the drama teacher, and again, he was the English teacher. And I, we just had a great relationship, and I can go to him. And he was like, you know, kind of like this this second kind of father and, and like, just a really kind but yet tough guy. Um, he, he said to me, Michael, what do you want to do? And I said, I, I, I want to study theater. He's like, go do it. Don't listen to what she's saying. Just go and do it. And he was just so, um, so honest and clear and... He, you know, his life was more akin to what I wanted to do. And I was like, if this man is saying, go do it and I want to do it, I'm going to freaking do it. And, 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 um, you know, I always reminded him of that. Cause I would see him, I would go back, uh, and see him and, and, um, he would invite me over his, his apartment and, you know, I would, you know, hang out with him and he was just, he was such a kind guy and and i would always tell him you know thank you for that thank you for really um encouraging me to and 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 really um supporting me in going into theater because i think uh you know i've made my life out of theater you know whether it's in one aspect or another i've 
theater has been my life and I um, thank him. He's my, he's my Datu. He's my LJ Ortega really is. That's so sweet. Thanks. Um, okay. And then my final question, uh, one of one of the, the sweetest things about the show uh, is the listener responses that you've had at the end of episodes. Yeah. Um, and so I, I know this is going to be maybe a tough question to answer. Have you had a favorite listener response so far? Because the one where those two kids from Texas sang the theme song just about struck me dead. <laughs> that was fun. That was a lot of fun. Um, Eva and Joaquin. Yes, yes Eva and Joaquin. They're awesome. Um Man, mm, that's a tough. To one. That's like trying to, you know, choose your favorite child. That's really hard. Man. That's really that's <laughs> yeah, a yeah, hard yeah. question. Call them. Um, I mean, they're they're also they're also wonderful in different ways, but I think the one that makes me guffaw, if I can say that, is um, is JD's. Uh, is he's the first one, uh, and he talks about. I think he's the first one, or is he the second one? He's the first in the first episode. I think. I think so. Yeah. He talks about like seeing the dolphins and just hearing the joy he had and and the way he talks about it uh, you know i don't know if he was trying to talk like it like try to be like an adult when talking about it but that it, it just it uh-huh. just made it so cute and so because he's, he's he's on the younger side of our age demographic but he it just made it so cute and, and it makes me like laugh out loud every time i hear him talk about the dolphin place uh i think for me that was that was probably my favorite shout out uh share out uh but all of them really are pretty amazing in their own ways and funny and and just uh, you could tell they just want to share their voice and that's that's what's that's the best thing it's so much fun Okay, I think I'm going to cheat, David, um, and say, first of all, okay. that uh, that for the share-outs themselves, uh, I love all of them. They're, yes. They're, they're, um, uh-huh. They all bring Equally something. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I actually, if, I, if you don't mind, I would love to share a listener response from one of our, um, our live, uh, the, the listening parties that we had. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Because... I would love that. How could I possibly deny you that? <laughs> I would love that. Um, so, so um, we did a listening party at the Van Buren branch, uh, the Van, B- yeah, the Van, Van Buren, Buren branch, branch of the Nork Public Library. Um, and this is so. This is in the Ironbound section of Nork. Um, and I, I lived there briefly when I was a child. My father had a an auto parts store. Um, my grandmother and my cousin they all lived in this one neighborhood. So we went to do this listening party in this neighborhood that meant so much to me personally um and we went in this into this library we set it all up we you know it's always a question mark how the audience is going to react because of course it's audio and we have an audiogram but it's still a static you know it's an image with a line squiggly line so we're always like well how are you know how are they gonna listen um and I believe actually this was the first one that we did in this way. We had live readings. This was the first time we did it as a listening party. Um, and so here we are in this neighborhood and we have um, parents with kids, ne- you know, sitting next to each other. And there was the moment in the scene where the family is having dinner and um, the first time that they go back and forth kind of between English and Spanish, um, I saw one of the children look right up, uh, you know, head spin to, to his mom um, and smile <laughs> and just smile of like, oh, oh. that's, 
that's us. You know, that was kind of like the intention, the smile. And she smiled down at him. And I and that to me always is like, I remember that moment because I was like, ah, oh this God. is this is, you know, this is why we're doing it. This this child mm-hmm. felt seen and heard and represented and that is uh, so important to what we're doing and really at the core of why we're doing this show um so i remember that particular listener response that's lovely thank you thank you you. oh this was fun thank you so much thank Thank you. you thanks david this has been great you can learn more about timestorm by visiting timestormseries.com and you can support Danya and Michael's company, Cocotazo Media, by buying merch and albums at their shop, cocotazomedia.com shop. You can also support our show by buying merchandise on our website at radiodramarevival.com shop, or joining our Patreon, like Zach Mann and Thomas Matlick. Thanks, fellas. Most importantly, you can support yourselves and your communities. If it's stressing you out, forget about the national news. Check it once a day if you have to. It's not irresponsible to insulate yourself right now. Here's what I would do. Focus on your immediate surroundings and keep as many people safe as you can. Wash your hands, stay inside, and consider doing a remote movie night. We just did one using an extension called Netflix Party that synchronizes playback and adds a little chat sidebar. It's delightful. None of these people have sponsored us or anything. I'm just saying they're nice. Take a breath. We've got this. You've got this. I love you. Oh, how you like me now, Will? I stole your thunder. Told the listeners I loved them before you could. Ha ha. It's not like love is a, you know, it's a renewable resource as far as those things go. Anyway, listeners, never get in a fight with your producer. Now, here it is, your moment of will. Hey listeners, this week I want to recommend another podcast that deals with time travel, politics, memory, and a lot of similar themes to Timestorm. It is, probably unsurprisingly, Ars Paradoxica by The Whisper Forge. Ars Paradoxica is, in my eyes, one of the three great like golden era audio dramas right up there with Wolf 359 and The Bright Sessions. These were all shows that were coming out in about 2014 to about 2017. Um, there are fantastic shows. And Ars Paradoxica is the story of Dr. Sally Grissom, a modern day scientist who accidentally invents time travel and gets sent back to the 40s all the way through the Cold War. Uh, it's a fantastic story about American history and American politics. But it shares a lot in common with how Timestorm discusses memory, identity, and history. It's a show that has a lot of really intense emotional turns, but is also really funny and has some beautiful, memorable characters. So if you're looking for a new listen, I highly recommend it. That's Ars Paradoxica, spelled A-R-S, second word, P-A-R-A-D-O. X I C A. Yeah, like paradox and then I C A. You can find it at arsparadoxica.com or in your podcatcher. And hey, listener, we're going to be okay. I love you. 
And now for the traditional end of episode gong, followed by the sound of the world's largest champagne bottle being opened and poured into the Grand Canyon, effectively creating a tributary of the Colorado River made of sparkling wine. Now, the ringing of that gong and the sound of sparkling falls tell me it's time for the credits. This podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C., which is the unceded territory of the Piscataway Indian Nation, the Piscataway Kanoi Tribe, the Pamunkey people, and the Nanticoke people. If you live in the Americas, Australia, or New Zealand, you can learn more about the native, First Nations, or indigenous heritage of your area by visiting whose.land. Our theme music is Danger Diggy Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Anne Baird. Our submissions editors are Elena Fernandez-Collins and Rashika Rao. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouch. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. <laughs>